If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to the Free Expression podcast from the Wall Street Journal opinion page. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. This week, the latest in my series of interviews with the Republican presidential candidates for next year's election. I'm joined by Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina. Tim Scott was born in 1965, along with his brother, was raised by his mother in working-class poverty. After graduating from Charleston Southern University, he worked for a while in financial services, and then entered state and national politics. Having served a term in the House of Representatives in 2013, Scott was appointed to fill a vacant seat in the Senate by none other than then-South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who is, of course, now a rival of the Senators for the GOP nomination. He was elected to a full term in 2016 and then re-elected in 2022. He's the first African-American to be a United States Senator from the southern U.S. since Reconstruction. He's made much of his biography in his presidential pitch to voters, telling them that his life story is a reflection of the American dream, that his family, as he puts it, went from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. He's had a reliably conservative voting record, but he has worked across party lines on a number of issues, including crime and measures to alleviate urban poverty. Earlier this year, he launched his campaign for president with a notably positive message. I choose freedom and hope and opportunity, he said. And he also added that the party faced a choice between grievance or greatness. Well, I'm going to talk about all that now with Senator Tim Scott. Senator, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Absolutely. It's good to be with you. Thanks so much. Senator, as I said in my introduction, you've launched your campaign. You've made your life story, your biography, an important part of your campaign. And you've struck a very positive tone. You've talked about your story being, in a sense, a reflection of the American dream about what can be achieved. Your message is very much that America is a great country and that there are many great things that can be achieved. Obviously, much needs to be done, but it is fundamentally a good country. That message, if I may say so, is kind of a little bit at odds, I think, with the sort of tone of politics today. And politicians on both sides tell us what a terrible country we've become. The left tells us we're terribly racist, uh, an irredeemably uh, flawed country. On the right, a lot of people on the right, including the former president, talk about how the country's gone horribly wrong and needs to be completely restored. And he talks about retribution. I'm wondering whether or not your positive interpretation of what America stands for, whether that really is in tune with the times these days. Well, certainly, if you look at the results of the last eight national elections, seven out of the eight of them we've lost. So whatever we're doing right now as a party is not working for the American people. And I think a part of that is because when the culture of grievance starts taking over the Great Opportunity Party, it eliminates the opportunity to become and continue to be the culture of greatness. And so one of the things I love doing is telling my story, mostly because it reflects America's progress. My grandfather, born in the 1920s, 
had to step off of a sidewalk in South Carolina when a white person was coming. My mother born when separate and unequal was the law of the land. I was born in the 1960s, and frankly, I've had the good fortune of living the American dream because America has evolved. Not celebrating the success of that evolution, to me, is part of the problem. Hearing the radical left say that we are a racist country. In 2021, as a response to the President Biden's first address to Congress, I said, while I have been discriminated against, America is not a racist country. The institutions of racism, systemic racism, has been pulled up by its root system in this nation. And I thank God Almighty that I've had the privilege of living my version of the American dream. And at the same time, there are forces on the right who believe that America is in a dark decline. I think that's just wrong. America is not in a decline, but under Joe Biden, it is in a retreat. We're retreating from our values. We're retreating from hard work. We're retreating from good education. That makes it feel like a nation in decline. But the fact of the matter is new leadership turns that retreat into an opportunity. We saw the first version of this movie in the 1970s, Jimmy Carter. The sequel took 50 years, thank God. Uh, we have Joe Biden playing this critical role of Jimmy Carter. The good news is Ronald Reagan brought in a new day morning in America. And I will simply say there's not another version of Ronald Reagan coming our way, but we can have an optimistic, positive messenger who understands that America's greatest days are still ahead of her, not in the rearview mirror, but in the windshield. Yeah, you mentioned Senator Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan has been very much, obviously, the towering figure in the Republican Party for a long time. And yet there are people in the Republican Party who actually now, many of them, think that whatever achievements Reagan had, and surely they were great, we all agree they were great, but that those ideas that that message back in the 1980s was suited for that time, you know, which was, we came out of the 1970s, a very bad time for America, but that message of small government, cut taxes, assertive American foreign policy, but that's no longer really the message. You know, America you know, needs to take care of its domestic economic problems. That doesn't always necessarily mean small government cutting taxes. And what's more, it needs to focus on its domestic problems rather than imposing itself around the world. Do you think Reagan still is as relevant today for the Republican Party as he was 40 years ago? Well, certainly the model of conservatism has been Ronald Reagan for the last 40 years, and it should be for the next 40 years for a couple of reasons. Let's take a look at what's happened since we abandoned the thought that we were the greatest nation on earth, that we were the city on the hill. Since then, we've accumulated more debt than we've ever accumulated in anyone's expectations over lifetime. Times. $33 trillion of debt trying to buy things that we cannot afford to impress a world that seems to be unimpressed. That happens because you let go of the thought that we are exceptional, that American exceptionalism is real. We can produce more. We can actually add more eggs and flour and ingredients to create a bigger pie where there's more for all. The left wants us to believe that the best way to solve the problems of this nation is socialism. So we just divide the pie in smaller pieces so everybody gets some. We cannot be the party that says there is no pie. The glass is not half full, it's half empty. That is the wrong direction for this country. And actually, the proof is in the pudding. One of the things that we did from 2017 on was we created a Tax Cuts and Jobs Act legislation that I was one of the three primary authors of that cut taxes. And as a result, we believed what Ronald Reagan and Art Laffer believed then, which was that if you cut taxes, you'll get more revenue 
not only to the country, but to the government. And we did that in 2017 when we cut taxes 35 to 21% on the corporate side. We cut every single bracket on the personal side. Revenues went up in 2018 and 2019 to the treasury with lower taxes because the Laffer curve still produces results. What doesn't produce results is a bigger government in the hands of either party. It reduces the efficiency and the effectiveness of the private sector. And we also see that today in the form of incredibly high inflation, high labor force participation rates on the sidelines. Our labor force participation rate for men has never been lower. It has been pretty consistent for women, however. And so we've created this culture of don't work, but get paid. Sorry, let me, let me press you then. So you think the tax cuts essentially always pay for themselves? So we're dealing, as you say, we've got a huge deficit right now in the United States. And I want to come on to talk in a little more detail about what's going on right now in Congress. But in general, you think that with a $33 trillion debt that the United States now has, the way to reduce the deficit is to keep cutting taxes? Is that the path forward? Well, Jerry, I say there's two really important parts to that message. Number one, if you don't control your spending, we saw this in the Mellon tax cuts in the 1930s that we didn't control our spending. We cut taxes, we had more revenues, but we had more spending. As a result, our debt and our deficits went up in the 30s. We saw this under John Kennedy. We saw this under Ronald Reagan as well. If you cut taxes so far through history, we've seen revenues go up to the treasury. But if you spend more, you actually end up with a higher deficit. Same is true with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. We saw revenue to the treasury go up 3%, but we saw spending go up significantly higher. And so the two things that you have to do at the same time is, number one, you have to control your spending. One of the reasons why part of my build, not borrow plan is to go back to pre-pandemic levels of spending. Uh, annual appropriations right now about $1.4 trillion. We need to get back to pre-pandemic, which will bring us back down to about $1.1, $1.2, $300 billion reduction overall. If we did that plus cut taxes, we'd find ourselves in a place where we're growing our economy and reducing our spending. We'd have more margin. So what would you cut? Well, a couple of things that you would start off with. Restoring work requirements and welfare saves you billions of dollars, number one, eliminating the current environment where President Biden is trying to once again provide $100 billion worth of student loan relief. To cut that, that's number two. Number three, you create a more competitive market in healthcare, where today the federal government pays about $2 trillion plus of all the hospitalization and healthcare expenses comes from the government that, that's getting closer and closer to a monopoly. I think that's bad for our free markets, bad for competition, and frankly, bad for the pricing of healthcare. So if you were able to get back and fuse more competition into our free markets, I think we'd have lower costs there. I do believe that you would have to also take a look at waste, fraud, and abuse. Our overhead in many of our programs can go from as low as 20% and high as 60%. If you eliminate some of that overhead by freezing vacant positions, you can actually reduce the size of government. If you had a 10th Amendment committee set up with governors talking about what they should be doing, that the federal government should not be doing, creating that line of delineation between the two, you also find yourself reducing the size and scope of government. What about the big question, obviously, which is entitlements? I think most people would say that what you've described will probably help to reduce the deficit, but that in the long run, we are on a trajectory that is unsustainable and that that's driven primarily by entitlements and that without some significant reform to entitlements, the US fiscal position is just not sustainable. Do you agree with that? What would you do if you do? 
I do think we're going to have to take a serious look at entitlements, but it's not just whether or not we're spending $1.1 trillion on Social Security or $750 billion on Medicare or a few hundred billion dollars on Medicaid or $400 billion on veterans or $572 billion on our servicing of our debt interest only. The truth of the matter is that we're going to have to take a look at our spending as an overall apparatus, the whole kit and caboodle. And we have to figure out, can we grow our economy closer to 5% as opposed to the first quarter of this year, 1%? If we can't do both at the same time, it doesn't matter whether it's the entitlement programs of Social Security or Medicare with the growth that is expected in the number of folks with life expectancy going up. Our nation will have one out of five Americans over the age of 65 and fewer under 18 for the first time in history of this country. Solving that equation is an important part. But solving the problem of spending and growing our economy at the same time means that you put more focus and emphasis on the private sector than you do the public sector. If we do that, we will find ourselves with more revenue and fewer challenges. We're going to take a short break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Senator Tim Scott, who, of course, is running to be the Republican presidential nominee in next year's presidential election. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm joined by Republican Senator Tim Scott. Well, let's bring it right into the news and what's going on right now in Washington with your Republican colleagues in the House. Speaker McCarthy is obviously trying to get these uh, appropriation bills passed, and there's this small but very important block that's holding out against him. Do you think that what Speaker McCarthy is doing right now is the right approach in terms of getting spending under control? Do you have some sympathy, though, with the minority there who say, you know what, we've got to be much more aggressive? I think what we have is the Speaker of the House with an absolutely nearly impossible. It is the proverbial rock in a hard place without question. Think about the fact that he has two warring factions. One, the Freedom Caucus, which is large enough to stop whatever he wants to get accomplished. And then there are the Tuesday Republicans who are also smaller in numbers, but large enough to stop him from getting things accomplished. And unfortunately, they are in polar opposite positions. One wants a far more friendlier approach. The other one wants to be aggressive and looking towards the future. I take the long view myself. I believe that the fact of the matter is the continuing resolution needs to have embedded within it the kind of spending restraint that we haven't seen in a very long time. But the precursor to that conversation has been the debt deal that was done earlier this year, I believe it was, where Congress voted, I voted against it, to give Joe Biden, our president, an unlimited credit card until January 2025. So all the challenges that we are seeing in the consternation around spending that is manifesting in a real civil war within the Republican construct in Congress is driven by this debt deal that frees up spending until not the end of this year, end of next year. So getting the pieces of the puzzle together for a continuing resolution has proven to be very difficult because the precursor to it has unlimited spending. So Finding that path forward has less to do with the numbers and more to do with the two factions and getting them on the same page is going to be incredibly difficult. I believe we'll more likely to have a shutdown than not at this point. You do. You think a shutdown is on the cards? 
Unless Kevin is able to wrangle together, and I've been in touch with him over the last few days, uh, he's working very hard to find a way to thread that needle. He did it once before on the last spending iteration. The challenge was that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act froze the 87,000 new IRS agents over 10 years that kicked the can down the road for another year. One of the things I think will be satisfactory in the future is to find a way to take the Inflation Reduction Act, which of course is a ridiculous name for a bill that actually increases inflation, and breaking it down and then whittling away at that as a part of the deal, eliminating the $100 billion back on the table for student loans. There are some small wins that can happen, but $100 billion is still real money in America. One of the uh, appropriations bills that's causing some real difficulty, of course, is the defense appropriation bill. And a number of your Republican colleagues in the Senate and uh, a significant number in the House opposed to President Biden's request for the additional $24 billion in aid to Ukraine. President Zelensky is in Washington this week, but the 23 House members and six senators have made it clear in a letter that they won't support this additional aid. Is this going to have to be done in the end with Democratic votes? One of the things I'd say, if you listen to Josh Hawley, one of the things I, I would say I agree with him on is the importance of accountability. While I do support Ukraine, I think that it is in America's national vital interest to degrade the Russian military. It keeps the homeland, home front safer, and it keeps our NATO partners that are contiguous with Ukraine safer. But we cannot do that with a blank check, and we cannot do that without accountability. So the frustration that you hear from members of Congress, I think, on the Republican side, part of it is right. We have to have better accountability. The second part that I don't think has been covered very well is that over $20 billion package spends a lot of time on Ukraine, not enough time or money on our border. The southern border is insecure, unsafe, and wide open, and it is leading to a humanitarian crisis. It's leading to 70,000 Americans dying every year to fentanyl and more than 6 million illegal crossings. That consternation you feel in the air, in part, comes from not having a president who seems to be able to walk and chew gum, deal with the issues that we have in Europe, and at the same time, making it a priority to close our southern border Unfortunately, what we have is exactly the opposite. We have President Biden selling parts to finishing the wall off for pennies on the dollar. That level of frustration is manifest in the reactions of members of Congress. And Senator, do you think Americans' patience with the war in Ukraine, with support for Ukraine, particularly Republican voters, I think it's running out? I do believe that because we do not have a president we have confidence in, particularly on foreign relations, it is hard to have confidence in whatever he decides to do. And he's done it so poorly. You think about the fact that Schultz and Germany led us to the starting line. That, that's never happened in American history, and it shouldn't happen again. You think about the fact that the commitment to weapons that we've made, we haven't delivered because we have a backlog. You think about the fact that we have a president that said of Ukraine early on, if you just have a small incursion, it might be okay to Russia. Here's a list of areas not to cyber attack. When you think about Afghanistan and the withdrawal that we saw there, you think about 13 dead American soldiers needlessly killed because this president decided to botch the withdrawal. Uh, you think about our allies questioning our commitments and our adversaries not fearing us. Senator, if you're elected president though next year, you take office in January 2025 and the war in Ukraine is still going on, would you ask the American people in Congress to continue to support Ukraine? 
Well, I certainly hope that I have a national intelligence briefing before I make any decisions on what I do as president of the United States as relates to any of the conflicts that we're seeing around the world. But yes, I certainly hope that I would be in a position to advocate on behalf of what I believe would be the priorities for our nation as it relates to Ukraine. But frankly, we would also, I would like to have an assessment of what's happening around the world, whether it's, uh, you look at the Sahel in Africa, we are seeing uh, coups at a higher level than we've seen in a long time. You look in the Indo-Pacific and we see what we see in Ukraine could be Taiwan next. And we also watch one of our greatest friends in the largest democracy in the Middle East, frankly, struggling with her neighbors, Israel. So state of Israel needs our support as well. So having a panoramic view of the national security hotspots around the world would give me the kind of information to make good decisions as president of the United States as relates to where we use our resources. But the first thing I would do is start rebuilding and refocusing our military to eliminate the, I'd purge out of it, the social experimentation and the social focuses from EIG, DEI to ESG to the gender issues, the abortion issues. I'd purge all that out and get back to lethality and making sure that the warfighter goes and takes over and comes home safe. That's the goal that we should have. Having that perspective, having the intelligence briefings would give me the ability to make the right decision on behalf of the American people. Then I'd walk out there and tell the American people what's in our best interest, why it's in our best interest, what we're going to do, and if we can get that done by keeping our troops at home and out of harm's way with the incredibly high price of Ukrainian blood, it might be worth the investment that saves thousands of American lives. Quickly, before we finish, our abortion, you heard obviously President Trump last weekend criticizing in very strong terms the abortion measures that have been passed and signed into law in places like Florida by Governor Ron DeSantis that impose a six-week limit. He described that as a terrible, a terrible mistake. You have criticized him for saying that. I want to know what you think. But all the polling suggests and a number of elections that we've had suggest that abortion is a challenge for the Republican Party in a way that perhaps it hasn't been for for many years as a result of the obviously the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And isn't Trump right that there just isn't public support for that kind of restriction on abortion, such a draconian restriction on abortion as, as six weeks? What's your view? Let me just uh, tweak what you said uh, for a second here. One of the things I've criticized the former president on, along with Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy, is on the fact that not supporting a 15-week national limit in my opinion, is to retreat on the issue of abortion. We, the party of freedom, should stand strong on behalf of a 15-week limit. It is where almost three out of four Americans find themselves as well. What I went on to say is that for Ron DeSantis, who's taken a very different position than he had as governor, he would be a pro-choice president. He has come out blasting the president for different comments. And I just think that that's hypocritical, that in fact, if those four candidates who all want to be the nominee of our party do not take a strong stand on a 15-week limit, I think that they are missing the boat, leaving the decision to New York and Illinois and California to have abortions on demand up until the day of birth is just wrong. That's what I've been critical of. Do you agree with Trump that the six-week limit is a terrible mistake? I think states have the ability to go more conservative than 15 weeks, and that would not be a mistake from my perspective. I would say Iowa's done a great job of creating the culture of life in their state, and they can have that responsibility and that opportunity. What I would suggest is as a nation, where as a member of the Senate, I watched every single Democrat senator who was present vote for abortion on demand. I would simply block that from being the policy of the United States and limit states to 15 weeks. They can go less, but they can't go more. 
couple of other quick things. At the first presidential debate last month, you were one of those who asked if President Trump were convicted and whether the Republican nominee, whether you'd still support him. How can the Republican Party unite behind a candidate if he's been convicted of a federal crime? Well, here's what I'd say. As the man who plans to be the next nominee of the Republican Party, I believe very confidently that the American people and Republican primary voters will come to the decision that I should be the nominee between now and the time that we have our convention. And so that is the position I've taken the entire time. It's not a different position. It's just a position I've taken. I I signed a pledge to support the Republican Party's nominee, and that would include the former president. I did so with every intention of being the nominee. Indictments, possible criminal convictions, you don't think that's disqualifying? I think you're you're innocent until proven guilty in America. And so as opposed to dealing with the hypotheticals, that's one of the reasons why you, you should hate raising your hand to any question because everything's more nuanced than one single raising of your hand. That's why I think it's important to have an opportunity, as you've just provided, Jerry, to have that discussion about the importance of being the nominee, why I think that turning the corner is important. If we're going to win the independence and solidify the Republican base and stop the road of socialism from running right through the Republican Party, we're going to have to do so with a new nominee. And it has to be someone who's not only conservative enough, but who also is able to persuade the independents to join our team. I believe that I'm the candidate that gets that job done. And again, I know you want to do that, but I have to ask this question too. If you were not to be the nominee, but if whoever the nominee is were to ask you to be vice president, is that something you'd consider? I'm running only to be the president of the United States. Final question, Senator. And again, thanks very much for joining us. We've got the second presidential debate coming up next week, hosted by Fox Business at the Reagan Library. I think in the first debate, I think it's fair to say, I don't think it's, it's too harsh on you to say that uh, a lot of people thought you didn't make the impact that perhaps you could have done. Maybe that's partly, again, this back to my first point about you know your message of positivity. Maybe in a heated presidential debate like that, where people are trying to distinguish themselves, maybe that message of positivity and expressions of hope and your life story, maybe it doesn't come through quite as effectively. And your numbers certainly didn't significantly move after that debate. Are you planning to take a different approach next week? My approach will be the same. I think being authentically myself is the best approach I can take to any situation I find myself in. And the fact of the matter is that perhaps when I look back at the first debate, what I would say is that having a food fight and finding out that you get more time to respond to questions by just being insulting and negative and throwing food, that definitely helped Joe Biden more than it helped the Republican Party or any one of the candidates on the stage. So I will certainly be myself. I think that contrast is good, by the way. So authentically being me is still being optimistic and positive, but there are differences between the folks on the stage and having an opportunity to talk about those differences would be good. If uh, the moderators don't ask that question, I hopefully will have an opportunity to do so. Well, it's very good to know that you plan to stick at least to a a message of civility and an upbeat uh, approach. So um, with that, I wish you all the very best. Senator Tim Scott, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. God bless. Be well. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for joining Free Expression. I do hope you'll join us again next week when we'll have another conversation about an important topic that's driving our world. Thanks for joining us. In the meantime, have a great week. 